fourth Matrix Law podcast with me, Richard Hermer, and Philippa Kaufman. Our co-host, Murray, will be joining a little later. If you've listened before, you'll know that we're having a series of conversations with human rights activists around the world, exploring different aspects of how the COVID crisis is impacting on human rights and the rule of law. Now, thus far, we've been examining the impact through the prism of what we might call traditional human rights, questioning the entitlement of states to curtail civil liberties, such as the freedom of movement and freedom of association in times of public emergency. We've also been observing how autocratic states or states with autocratic tendencies have been taking advantage of a moment of crisis to tighten their grip on power. Today, we want to look at a different but equally important human rights impact of the crisis, namely its impact on existing inequalities within our society, most particularly race, gender and poverty, not just looked at individually, but how they intersect with each other in a particularly cruel way in times of crisis. It's becoming increasingly clear that whilst the virus itself doesn't discriminate, its effect does. In addition to discussing the unequal impact of the virus and examining why that is the case, we also want to ask what the response of law should be. It's easy to forget that since the ratification of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, the right to an adequate standard of living, including adequate food, clothing and housing, has, on paper at least, been deemed a fundamental human right, as has the right to enjoy access to them without discrimination. Yet, whilst more classic human rights, such as freedom from torture or arbitrary detention, have found themselves in constitutions and case law all over the world in the following decades, these economic rights are rarely argued, let alone enforced, either in international courts or in domestic courts. Why that is, is one of the the issues to discuss, and whether, if we don't enforce these rights going forward, respect for the rule of law will diminish. So we're joined by the two perfect guests to discuss these topics. Afwa Hirsch is a barrister, but is much more well-known as an author, journalist and broadcaster for, amongst others, The Guardian, LBC and Sky News. Her new book, Brit-ish, Race, Identity and Belonging, is a Sunday Times bestseller. And this follows what was purportedly a children's book about Lady Hale, the first woman president of the Supreme Court, entitled Equal to Everything, but which Murray has pointed out it's perhaps the best introduction to the importance of the rule of law for anyone of any age. And if that wasn't enough, Afwa is also the Wallace Annenberg Professor of Journalism and Communications at the University of Southern California. And her thinking on a range of issues, including writing brilliantly on race and inequality. Martha Spurrier is also a barrister and indeed enjoyed a highly successful career both at the bar and before that in-house at Mind and then the Public Law Project, developing the law not least for the benefit of the most vulnerable, championing children and women's rights and the rights of prisoners and immigration detainees. And as most will know, Martha is now Director of Liberty, which since 1934 has been the country's most prominent civil liberties organisation, campaigning tirelessly for the protection and promotion of human rights, a role that has rarely been more important than it is today. And it's been at the forefront of seeking to ensure that the government's measures do not unduly restrict civil liberties. And so we are delighted uh, that you can both join today. Before we chat, can I just roll out a few statistics just to help frame the discussion? And in respect of race, I'd like to be able to give you accurate figures about its impact in the Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities in the United Kingdom. But as yet, the daily data we receive doesn't provide a relevant breakdown. 
But the data that does exist shows a remarkable disparity of impact. A study in early April, for example, by the Intensive Care National Audit and Research Centre found that 35% of almost 2,000 patients uh, were assessed as non-white. That's nearly triple the 13% proportion in the UK population as a whole. In the United States, the figures are even more stark. The Washington Post has reported that in Chicago, black people are dying at six times the rate of white people. And in the state of Louisiana, 70% of fatalities are from black communities, whereas they represent only 38% of the population. Poverty. A Food Foundation recent survey showed that one and a half million adults were not eating for a whole day because they didn't have access to food or money to buy food. And three million people were in households where someone had been forced to skip meals. There remains a real risk that the almost million children who otherwise obtain free school meals in this country were at risk of going hungry. We have more food banks here than branches of McDonald's. In respect of gender, whilst the evidence might be that more men are dying of COVID-19, the impact of the crisis is particularly profound on women, whether measured economically by the disproportionate number of women in jobs that are being lost, to the increase in crimes of domestic violence, to the inequality of parenting, leading to far more women taking the strains of lockdown than men. One reflection is in respect of childcare and home learning, not least for single parents. In the United Kingdom, about 20% of households uh, uh, with dependent children are headed by single mothers, against a figure of just over 3% for single fathers. So these are all deeply concerning statistics, and to a large degree, it's unhelpful to look at each of race and gender and poverty distinctly because they're so interlinked. But let, let's start, though, if by looking at race. So, Afwa, you, you've written um, brilliantly about the impact of the crisis on BME, BAME um, communities. What, what are the factors we need to look at so you kind of understand why there's been such a disproportionate impact? Until we get more data, it's hard to know what the cause of this disproportionality is. But the important thing to say is that the studies that have been done so far, and you mentioned one of them, Richard, are confirming that ethnic minority people are dying at a highly disproportionate rate. This week, The Guardian conducted some original analysis matching death certificate data to census population data, which showed that ethnic minority groups appear to be dying at a 27% higher rate than you'd expect from our representation in the general population. And that's not explained by the fact that COVID has tended to affect urban conurbations where there is generally a higher density of population and a higher proportion of BAME people, because even if you factor that in, there's still an unexplained overrepresentation of BAME people dying. There are a number of theories about why this might be. Um, one of them is that within the health service, which accounts for a lot of BAME deaths because a lot of ethnic minority people work in the NHS, uh, the kinds of roles that ethnic minority people are playing put them more in the front line. We know from research conducted by the British Medical Association that ethnic minority people are less likely to raise workplace concerns about a lack of um, equipment, about, about workplace risk. We know that there's a shortage of PPE, and so it follows that perhaps when ethnic minority people are concerned about safety, they feel less able to raise a grievance or draw attention to that risk. 
There are theories about vitamin D deficiency, which can affect anyone of any race, but affects ethnic minority people more widely and and a more severe level. Um, there are there are obviously theories about the socioeconomic pattern of the AME communities, um, which all of these need more research. But the reality is that this is not just a phenomenon for people on low incomes or people in living in um, uh, densely populated housing. This is affecting doctors at consultant level as much as it is janitors and bus drivers. And until we have more data, it's really difficult to take the necessary steps to investigate and protect this clearly vulnerable group. And one of the things that I'm seeking to draw attention to in my journalism is how little data has been being collected about outcomes in healthcare for ethnic minority people, because we already know that when it comes to infant mortality, maternal mortality, black and ethnic minority people are severely affected out of all proportion. And also it's important to say that you know, even though we use terms like BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic, when you drill down into those communities, there are very different outcomes for different groups. So when it comes to infant mortality, Black Caribbean and Pakistani heritage people are much more affected. When it comes to maternal mortality, Black African women are more affected. So it's a need for data that is sophisticated and specific and that is conducted nationwide. And that, that simply hasn't been being done despite activist calls since the 1970s, for example, to take the very simple step of including ethnicity data on death certificates. Um, so we're not even at the stage where we can analyze the data. We're at the stage now of demanding for the data to exist. And that is really frustrating because it means that the efforts that need to happen now urgently are facing an additional hurdle of having to try and, and gather the information they need to start actually working out what is happening here. Because until we have that data, it's speculation. So. Can I just ask you, firstly, why hasn't this data been collected? Because it would probably strike most people that if you don't have the data, you can't understand the problem. And if you can't understand a problem, you can't fix the problem. So why don't we have it? And also, what's been the response from central government to calls from people like yourself to start obtaining it? Well, this is where I think structural racism actually plays a role, because it appears that there's just been a genuine lack of interest, frankly, in health inequality as it affects ethnic minority communities. And this is in spite of the consistent work of not only activists representing minority groups, but also health inequality groups, official inquiries that have looked at health outcomes have all recommended that more data be gathered. And it seems to be something that no government of any uh, political persuasion has actually made the effort to do. And I think it also relates to the visibility of people who care about health inequality, that they simply haven't had um, the traction to really make this an issue on the political agenda that people care about. And one of the silver linings, if you can even call it that, from this whole situation is I think that it is starting to make people focus more on the health inequality that we have been living with. Because if you take COVID out of the picture, the, it's already a, a grossly disproportionate one. And it's quite hard to understand when you look at it, why we've been content to see um, babies from ethnic minority communities dying at so, so much higher rates um, and mothers. And there has lately been some media around this. Um, maternal mortality levels really are very serious, double the rate from ethnic minority women as the average. 
So I think that this is just an issue that's been too easy to ignore. And I suspect that if you don't have the data, then the problem doesn't exist. And therefore, you don't have to tackle it. And to tackle this problem, I suspect you will also have to look much more widely at the reality of ethnic inequality in our society, which is perhaps something um, that no government has been in a rush to tackle in a very substantive way, because we have had all of these declarations about caring about equality. But when you actually look at the data, it doesn't seem that anyone has really taken the essential first step to, to being serious about trying to improve those outcomes. And I think COVID as a, as, a, as a phenomenon has had a tendency to really exacerbate and lay bare already existing inequalities in our society. And that's something we've seen when it comes to class, when it comes to gender, when it comes to um, regional disparity. And then in, in regards to the second part of your question about government, the government has now announced an inquiry into ethnic minority deaths from COVID only after weeks of pressure from journalists and from the public. And I have to say, I, I, have, my, my, um, I have my reservations about what that inquiry can achieve in the absence of this data, which doesn't exist. It's having to be extrapolated from multiple sources. So it's still going to be guesswork. And that is my concern. And I haven't heard anyone at government level engaging in this in, in enough detail to really suggest the problem might be tackled in future either. You raise how the kind of the, the, the causes are complex and we still don't understand it, not least because we don't have proper data. But can I ask you about one aspect, which is where race intersects with poverty and um, how that amplifies both the poverty, both the impact of poverty and the impact of race and the extent to, you, to which you think that is being amplified by what we're living through at the moment? I think that clearly in so many ways, both in terms of vulnerability to illness and death from this disease, but also um, in experiences in education, in access to food, in housing, that there is the inequality that exists in our society is really being laid bare. And um, I think that this is um, something that's provoking, and this concerns me, a, a, almost a kind of a new type of sanitarianism you know we saw in the 18th and 19th centuries people who blamed the poor for getting sick or dying this idea that it was immorality it was the way these people lived they were filthy they were unhygienic and I've detected a strain in the narrative today about that blaming people for their own susceptibility to illness suggesting it's because they live on top of each other or they eat unhealthy food and obesity makes you more vulnerable to this disease you know it, it may well be true that obesity makes you more vulnerable to this disease but instead of um, analyzing the underlying inequalities that push people to poorer diets or substandard housing, which nobody wants to live in. Instead, it's this kind of uh, superficial blame game. And I think we've seen that very clearly in the US where the Surgeon General re recently told African-Americans that they should abstain from alcohol and tobacco um, in response to COVID, suggesting obviously that it's their lifestyle choices that are making them die. And these phenomenally disproportionate numbers. I mean, the statistics from the US really are terrifying. Um, but I think I'm seeing that here too. And I think we need to look at poverty as a structural phenomenon that is affecting people, not as a, a, a matter of choice. And almost this is some kind of divine retribution for bad lifestyle choices. So, I mean, and it may sound dramatic to say that, but if you look at some of the debate that's happening um, online, if you look at the responses to my journalism, I mean, thousands of people making these kind of comments. And I, I really feel that that is a massive retrograde step. And I hope that this 
crisis period will help us understand inequality better. But at the same time, I fear that it might be easier to just feed into narratives about blame um, and moralizing. Come on to that in a second again in through the lens of gender and the concerns that some people have that it is going to reinforce old school traditional gender roles because of the impacts it's going to have. But could I just ask you just one other kind of aspect which you have touched on in terms of the way that poverty works out, which is just how we are experiencing this crisis. I mean, I'm really conscious I'm speaking to you in West Sussex as a kind of a privileged lawyer looking out over a nice country field. But the impact for what this means, whether it's because your kids can't have any education because you're in a family in which maybe nobody speaks English or you've got no access to a computer or there's no room that's quiet, um, you are out of a job, you are in a smaller space, just the kind of the way that inequality is making our experience of this crisis so very different. It is, and it's also, it's also intersecting with the state's response to COVID. So, for example, the idea that we will start being policed for how much time we spend out of the house. If you live in um, multiple occupation housing and you don't have a single-use kitchen or bathroom, you're not going to go to the supermarket once a week and bulk buy all your supplies. And you're not going to have your kids happily playing in the garden while you um, don't come out of your front door every day. And this, this idea that people, again, are being blamed for taking their children to the park or blamed for going to the supermarket today and now could actually be fined and interrogated by the police for doing so, again, it reveals the disparity and also the ignorance of government. Because to me, the government advice from the start has shown a complete ignorance um, as to the reality for many people. And it's ironic that people who tend to live in those conditions do so because it's what's been provided for them by the state. So the idea that the state is most ignorant of what life is actually like for them, I think is very telling about those who make decisions in this country and those who have to live with them. And again, I think this is an opportunity for people who've maybe never directly experienced that to engage with it in a way that they haven't in the past, because that disparity now, the idea that if you um, have enough privilege to have a home and a garden, you are not affected by the lives of people who have a completely different reality. That that uh, boundary has been broken down. If we have people who aren't able to stay safe and healthy, then we're all at risk. And in a way, it's a, it's a tragic way of um, society telling us that there is no us and them. And I, I think that it would be crazy not to take that from this experience. So um, it's unfortunate that we have in a particular leadership right now that doesn't seem in tune to that reality but I do think that more and more people are um, holding the government to account for really failing to tackle the long-term projection as to how we can come out of this as a society if people cannot physically because of the conditions in which they live often despite working ironically in the NHS or other crucial public sector jobs which have never been valued until now um, that we that this this the idea of what is valuable and how people live and how it affects us all is going to have to be completely reassessed. And my hope is that we will come out of this differently. Well, I definitely want to talk about that, not least what role, if any, law can play in a kind of a positive reaction to this crisis. But before, before we do that, can I just 
ask you to apply a kind of a gender lens to also what's going on here. I mean, there's a lot of analysis. Well, there's lots we already knew about women in jobs that are more economically insecure. Um, there's now an analysis that those are the jobs as we move towards social, greater social distancing, that ones that you are going to find more women insofar as they keep hold of jobs, finding themselves home-based. I mean, what are the, A, what's in terms of the impact that, that as you see it, um, on particularly on women through this, through this um, crisis, and concerns about how that might be, the risks of that being kind of institutionalised going forward? Yeah, I think, I mean, I would broadly divide those up into kind of social concerns and economic concerns. I think, as you've said, the social reality is that women are massively disproportionately bearing the burden of this new domesticated life. We've all been more domesticated. We're all at home. There is more domestic labour to do because everyone is at home. Children who are getting fed at school are now having to be fed at home. Um, there's more housework generated by everyone being at home. And women, um, not and, and because there are more female single parents than male single parents, but also because we still live in a society where those traditional gender roles are still prevail um, more than other countries in Western Europe or in the developed world, um, that women are disproportionately bearing the brunt of that additional unpaid labor. And it's interfering with their ability to conduct labor in the formal economy because we're, we're being expected to magically combine both at the moment. Um, and then in terms of the economy, my concern is that this is going to, as most economics, economists are predicting, have a serious and at least short and medium term impact on the economy. And previous recessions or periods of negative growth have always, in every single instance, disproportionately affected women. Women have been pushed into more insecure labor. They've been pushed into part-time work in which they often do more for less pay. Um, they're the first to be made redundant, and then they're also responsible for caring responsibilities for children or for parents or for elderly people, in addition to those pressures. So, you know, I, I have real concern about the economic impact. And as we also know from previous um, economic downturns, the only way you can address that is by proactively anticipating it and creating policy that acknowledges it. And I haven't heard any discussion of that whatsoever from any of our political leaders. So that concerns me. If the work is being done to anticipate the inequality that will come from this, it's certainly being, being uh, discussed at an invisible level. It's not obvious and it's certainly not accessible to, to people who care about it. Well, can I move then at that kind of almost a perfect moment then to move to discuss for uh, move the discussion from what the problem is, profound problems are, uh, to what the solutions might be and what role, if anything, lawyers um, have. Because at the beginning, I talked about how economic rights and social rights were enshrined, have been enshrined for decades in the Universal Declaration, and indeed six years before Eleanor Roosevelt helped draft that document. Her husband, FDR, had identified freedom from want as one of the four essential freedoms that everybody in the world uh, had an entitlement to. And 80 years later, unimaginable wealth in this world, it's still a purely illusory right to most people on the planet. And so there's clearly an enormous challenge, and it's clear that this crisis has um, amplified that in a really very cruel way. Um, Martha, liberty, of course, is really well known for fighting for what I probably very loosely and incorrectly described as traditional human rights, your right to protest, the right to freedom of association, free speech. 
do you feel that there are ways in which this crisis is going to force the human rights community to essentially realign and change the emphasis? I think so, and I really hope so. That conversation has been underway in some parts of the human rights world for some time now. I think there's been a real recognition that you can understand the focus on those classic rights about privacy and protest by looking back at that historical period that you just talked about and remembering that much as we kind of like to think of human rights as being some sort of apolitical framework, the reality is that ideology is everywhere. And after the Second World War, there was a concerted effort to divide civil and political rights on the one hand and socioeconomic rights on the other. And the liberal countries of the world, of which the US and the UK were two, were very content with the idea of curtailing state power that infringed on individual freedom, but were deeply uncomfortable with the idea that human rights would start to interfere with distribution and the distribution of resources. In the global south, a pretty different approach was taken. Now, their resources are much more constrained than ours are, so those legal measures haven't perhaps been as effective as they might have hoped. But in South Africa, for example, you have a right in the constitution to housing and to education, something that we would never have dreamt of having um, in the in, in our legal statutes here. So what I think then happened over the next kind of 50, 60 years was that the human rights movement, particularly in the West, effectively you know, um, consciously or unconsciously got co-opted by a neoliberal reality that um, in many ways was supportive of a free market capitalist utopia. And it was only with the 2008 financial crisis that suddenly a lot of organisations and a lot of people working in human rights realised that the way that we think about human rights in this country, and particularly if you're a lawyer, the way you've been trained to think about human rights and argue human rights cases, has no answer to matters of substantive inequality, has no framework for talking about redistributive justice, um, and therefore has no, no way of grappling with the reality that first world countries that are very wealthy are nevertheless having an extraordinary disparity and a growing disparity of wealth which is a gateway then to the enjoyment of all those other rights that we think are so important, because, you know, quite frankly, if you don't have food to put on your table, or you don't have a roof over your head, or you don't have adequate clothing, or you don't have access to social security, your protest rights, your privacy rights, they're still important, of course, but they're just simply not going to be at the top of people's lists. And I think, you know, certainly my kind of journey as a human rights lawyer and a human rights activist has been feeling increasingly as though there is a disconnect between the legal world in this country and the legal reality for most people. That, you know, as food bank provision rockets, as homelessness rockets, and, you know, Grenfell, again, was a kind of totemic example of a lack of answers in the human rights framework in this country to structural inequality. Um, and so I think... Like I say, the conversation was underway. I think it now has a greater urgency and a greater focus. And I really hope that organisations like Liberty and lawyers across the country and activists across the country will start to think about how the law can be used more creatively, both to, to breathe the full potential into existing rights that we have. You know, there are rights in the Human Rights Act that can be used to advance socioeconomic rights. They just need to be you know, framed in a particular way, but also to start really ambitiously advocating for proper justiciable socioeconomic rights in a way that is that is braver than we've been before. And Martha, on that, how how do you see the way forward in terms of trying to advance the case for making these rights justiciable? So, 
Um, we've had the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which we've had since uh, in force since 76. Um, it has not until 19, 2009. There was no optional protocol, unlike the ICCPR, which enabled individuals to make complaints to the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Um, but it has never been... Um, enforceable in any way and obviously in our own courts we don't have anything equivalent to the Human Rights Act which renders our uh, civil and political rights justiciable. What way do you see um, us being able to take this cause further forward? So I think you have to kind of take a multi-pronged approach. Um, I think the first, like I say, is to use some of the things that are the tools that are already there. So we have seen in the Human Rights Act the use of things like positive obligations, the recognition that destitution sometimes does count as inhuman and degrading treatment, the fact that we do have a standalone right to equality. Those creative lawyers have been able to expand those rights to encompass something that you could very well describe as a kind of socioeconomic right. So I think that's part of it, is pushing the boundaries of what's already there and applying those to some of the issues that AFWA has just been talking about. Then I think it's about looking at what is popular and therefore what can gain political constituency and support and advocating for those things. So I I don't think it's realistic politically right now to say we should be bringing into force an entire international treaty and making it justiciable. I just don't think under this government that that would happen. Having said that, Repeated polling of people in the UK has shown that when they're asked what they think their human rights are, they say that they think they have a human right to education and a human right to healthcare. After this crisis, I think people's sense of the need for a right to healthcare written down will be even more profound than other than, than ever, and particularly for those communities who have been at the sharp end of not getting the healthcare that they need. So you could start there. You could start having a conversation politically about that needing to become a justiciable right. Similarly, There are lots of conversations going on about the fact that we have many people in this country who are destitute, despite the fact that they are on social security or they are working. And so I think there is a conversation that you could have with a right wing government in the same way that you could have with a left wing government about saying, surely we have to have state systems in place that if you are being supported by the state, you cannot also be destitute and that that is a structural failure if the law cannot save you from that fate. And again, you know, conversations about the inadequacy of universal credit and the fact that people simply cannot be expected to live on £70 a week, those have come to the fore in this crisis more than ever before. And it provides you for with a moment of saying, what would a right not to be destitute look like? What does that mean in structural terms, in terms of social security, in terms of housing? And then we've seen homeless people get housed all of a sudden. So does that give you a way into talking about, well, what should what would a legal right look like? What what are the duties on local authorities to use their resources differently in order to house people? So I'm not saying there's a kind of quick and easy way of getting these rights onto the statute book. Um, And I also don't want to suggest that this crisis is a kind of opportunity because it's a crisis. And I'm also sure there will be a backlash and we will then find ourselves in times of scarcity and in times of scarcity you know, the same people get scapegoated and punished. But I do think there is an opportunity bit by bit to pick on particular issues and try and make legal progress with making those more hard-edged for people. Without wanting to kind of get too technical about the law, I mean, isn't isn't there an opportunity here through the Human Rights Act? Because Philippa's right that the whilst the United Kingdom has signed up to the UN 
Convention on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights, which does have a range of rights to social security, to decent housing, education, healthcare. We haven't made it part of our own law, so it means our courts can't give effect to those rights. But when we interpret what the rights under the Human Rights Act are, it is legitimate to look to that treaty. And I wonder if there's a chance that if there is a real groundswell in society to understanding that these social economic rights are really fundamental, then in the same way that in the last 20 years we've been arguing about conventions to do with torture and arbitrary detention being part of the Human Rights Act and help us interpret it, I mean, is, is, there, is there any cause for optimism that the courts might start interpreting social economic rights as fundamental rights through the Human Rights Act? Yes, I, I think there is cause for optimism. And I, the thing that springs to mind is the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, which is, again, a, a treaty that, if you look at it, it reads very like a treaty about socioeconomic rights. Um, and that has been used in many cases, including in Supreme Court cases, to bring a disability rights lens to kind of mainstream human rights issues. And it's been referred to in judgments, and it's been a pretty successful way of advancing some of those rights issues for that community. Um, so, so yes, I think it's an opportunity, and I think the more live it feels for judges, you know, judges don't exist in a vacuum. The mood music is there for them, and if the public pressure is there and the political will is there, then that creates the conditions where you might then get some more progressive jurisprudence. And I also think, again, you know, there are ways that you can draw comparisons. I, I think abortion is an interesting one. We in this country think of reproductive rights as kind of part of the canon of civil and political rights, but really abortion is a healthcare right. It's a socioeconomic right in many ways. So again, it sort of gives you the idea that that split between civil and political and socioeconomic probably doesn't make much philosophical sense in the first place, but also that you can flex those concepts. And with a bit of creativity, you might be able to bring things into the more traditional civil and political rights umbrella in the Human Rights Act um, than perhaps we were thinking about, you know, when we were learning about this stuff at law school and basically being told none of it's possible, it'll frighten the horses and it's, you know, a political dream that will never be realised. And again, I mean, another angle, another prism to which to look at it and to address it is through um, law relating to discrimination on the grounds of um, race uh, and gender. Yes. Where Zafu has been ex sort of setting out the impact has been, from a social economic perspective, has been so utterly profound. Absolutely. Just to put a, a minor spanner in the works, just in terms of, of the kind of cultural change that this would require in our judges, um, uh, when it comes to applying the discrimination provisions uh, of the Human Rights Act, uh, our current law from the Supreme Court is, is to the effect that insofar as any discrimination is the result of socio-economic choices on the part of the state, then it is only in circumstances where those choices are manifestly without reasonable foundation, which has been given a very, very uh, narrow reading, um, that the courts are going to hold that the discrimination is unjustifiable. And, and, and I give that as an example because what really does infuse our court's approach at the moment to the Human Rights Act, to uh, a, an instrument protecting civil and political rights, is that insofar as the protection of those rights strays into areas that involve social and economic choice and expenditure, the courts stand absolutely firmly back on the basis that these are 
political decisions for our legislature and not matters of rights. And that is such a fundamental principle that embeds our Human Rights Act at the moment, such that uh, you mentioned, Martha, that there are some instances where social and economic interests have come into play. Um, for example, in relation to immigration and destitution that can result. But if you actually look at those circumstances where the courts will intervene, it is really when somebody is utterly destitute at the point of facing starvation, if the state doesn't step in and help, that the courts will then say their human rights, their civil and political rights are engaged, but not before. So that that that, that is a really strong concern that I have, that, that, that this requires such a fundamental cultural change in our judiciary that they're not going to be prepared to take that step, precisely because they feel that they will no longer be acting as judges, but acting instead as politicians. I think this is where I always reflect on the fact that the law is very rarely the vanguard of great progress, you know, much as I love the law. Um, I think it usually follows. It usually follows public opinion and it usually follows a change in political opinion. So equal marriage you know, didn't happen with the law first. Like it, and, and so I think while the law and cases and litigation and lawyers and judges will play their part in this and absolutely should play their part, it has to be a much more holistic strategy, which will incorporate journalism and will incorporate politicians and campaigning and real people demanding different change and voting with their feet when the next election happens. And, you know, and then and then you create the conditions in which the law, it starts to become possible for judges to make different kinds of decisions, either because they are mandated to do so through primary legislation, or because the climate around them has changed. And, and so I think it's about thinking about a, a kind of broader toolbox of how to get there and also probably of not thinking that this is all going to be sorted and justiciable and resolved in 12 months or five years but more thinking about what can we realistically achieve in 10 years or 15 years time. I was just reflecting on the first time I met Dominic Raab which was actually at a Liberty event in 2008 I think it was and we were talking about our views on the Human Rights Act on camera for Liberty. And I was, I think, the young human rights lawyer journalist who was talking about how I felt there was a lot of misunderstanding and misperception about this incredibly powerful tool for protecting the vulnerable in society. And Dominic Raab was the young Tory saying that his dream is to tear up the Human Rights Act altogether. And I could never have imagined at that moment that we would be in 2020 in the midst of an unprecedented national crisis with Dominic Raab essentially in the prime minister's seat. I mean, it kind of exceeds all my worst nightmares. And then you add to that, that he's part of a government that has shown it's not afraid to actually threaten the judiciary if they perceive that judges are using anything resembling activism to make sure that the constitution and the rights of British people are protected. And so it's a kind of nightmarish mix. But at the same time, I think just listening to Martha, I also feel that that groundswell of opinion for socioeconomic rights, which I don't really feel I have perceived in the British public before, although I know in countries like Brazil, there's this, a completely different relationship with the concept but I think if you talk about a right, right to healthcare in Britain right now, you will have people's attention. And I think if you talk about benefits, something that most people um, have never actually experienced in their life, now 
a huge swathe of the population has had to grapple with universal credit. The idea that this is just the the, the domain of, a, of an underclass or people who don't work has been completely exploded. And so I think that there will be an opportunity to engage public opinion in socioeconomic rights. The problem then is, of course, that we have this unprecedented uh, regressive leadership. So it's almost kind of the, the, the best and worst opportunity at the same time. But I think this conversation is so important because if we can actually build that sense of public enthusiasm, um, as Martha said, you know, that's where the change starts. And eventually we will have different leadership in government and we will have judges who may be uh, more ambitious when it comes to their interpretation. So I think that maybe this is where we work with what we've got. Well, I think I'm just... Maybe I'm just an eternal optimist. I mean, I agree with Martha that these things take sometimes generations to change in respect of the law. I mean, people who came before us as human rights lawyers used to get books thrown at them whenever they mentioned the European Convention on Human Rights. But I I, I also feel that the common law and judges who enforce it recognise that if they are so out of kilter with where society is, then whatever the politicians might be threatening, it's worse if you courts lose public trust. And ultimately, I think this crisis is so profound that it is going to result in profound changes to the way that people see the role of law and what law does. But maybe I'm just an optimist. Um, Martha Afua, thank you so much um, for taking part. It's been fantastic listening to you and incredibly important um, what you're both saying. Um, And thank you for everything you're doing um, for all of us in society during these um, extraordinary times. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks so much, both of you. joined now by Murray Hunt. Um, Murray, perhaps I could ask you this, not least with your kind of Bingham rule of law hat on. There's clearly a sense amongst many of us that there is a growing consensus through this crisis of the impact that inequality is having on so many of our communities and the need to address that, whether that's seen through health service or the way that it's impacting on people in low-grade housing. I wonder if I can have your reflections on that. I mean, what do you think? How do we institutionalise that, either through politics or through the law? Yes, I think that's a, a very interesting question. I think in, in many ways the current crisis has shown us how outdated really our traditional distinctions between civil and political rights and social economic rights actually is because there really has emerged an incredibly strong consensus both in this country and in and abroad that there is an important role for the state to play in the face of um, threats to security of this kind and that requires the the state to to positively do things and i think one of the really interesting things is the extent to which there there clearly is a strong consensus which underpins the government's responses uh, both in trying to protect the rights of life, but also in trying to protect people's economic security and their their right to an adequate standard of living and their mental health and so on. Um, so it, it's been an interesting exercise in revealing that consensus, I think. And it, it, I think it helps us to reconceive the way we think about this traditional distinction between civil and political rights and social and economic rights. 
if we think about what the most important right is at the heart of the current crisis, it's the right to life. Um, now, many people think of that as a, um, in a traditional way as something which states need to not interfere with in a negative sense. But actually, human rights treaties recognise that the right to life is something which states have to protect by law. They actually have to take positive steps to actually protect it. And of course, what we've done in this country since 1945 is construct a pretty elaborate legal framework, the NHS, to protect the right to life and the associated right to health. Um, and the, the rights which go with that right to adequate health treatments, which we've protected legally in this country, are now front and centre. Um, and those are rights which clearly require the state to actually spend money and to do things, um, as are the rights to social security, which we also recognise and give legal effect to. So I'm hoping that, um, that this consensus which the crisis has revealed uh, will help us to, to move on from those old debates that uh, you have civil and political rights which are legally enforceable on the one hand, and then you have social and economic rights which are somehow just um, sort of aspirations and not really of legal concern at all. And from a rule of law perspective, I mean, who's that a challenge to? Is that a challenge to Parliament or is it a challenge to the courts or is it a challenge to both of them? And, and if it's primarily a challenge to Parliament, is there a real risk here of judicial overreach if they try and fill the vacuum? I think it's a challenge to both of them. I think first and foremost, it probably is a challenge to our politicians um, and, to, and to Parliament. Uh, and in particular, uh, in the context of our discussions and debates about um, the UK constitution, which, um, which the, the current government um, has, has said it's very interested in taking forward, we need to think about the nature of that debate. Um, and we need, I think, if we're talking about constitutional reform and a constitutional commission to look at constitutional reform, to be focusing on what things unite us and bring us together and can command consensus as a, as a nation, um, rather than those things which divide us. And at the moment, the constitutional commission that the government is proposing is very much focusing on quite divisive issues about the roles of judges and the limits of the roles of judges. Um, whereas I think this crisis reveals the potential for there to be a great deal of consensus about some fundamental values, including the right to health and the right to security of living. Um, and that really ought to be at the focus of any constitutional reform process. So there's a challenge for our politicians, I think, uh, but there is also a challenge um, for the courts. Um, and courts have tended to suggest that they have no role in relation to social and economic rights. But actually, um, I spent a lot of my life as a, a practicing barrister uh, enforcing social and economic rights in the education context, in the social welfare context. We have detailed legislative provisions which give us justiciable legal rights, and the courts are quite used to um, getting involved in upholding those duties. So they do have a very recognised role in upholding social and economic rights where there's a legislative framework. And we just need to be imaginative about how uh, legal frameworks can give effect to social and economic rights in a way which means that there's a duty of progressive realisation uh, on the government, and the legal framework imposes that on the government, which means there is a role for courts, but of course budgetary decisions have to remain uh, the role for the democratically elected decision makers. You're absolutely right, of course, Murray, that our, our courts routinely enforce um, what are in effect social and economic rights, but as you point out, there are always rights that are conferred through legislation, which Parliament has passed through the democratic process. And the courts feel fully justified in taking what is the traditional course, which is simply enforcing the law as given by Parliament. Um, but if one is talking about conferring in something akin to 
the Human Rights Act, social and economic rights, which are generally described in very, very vague terms, and then um, uh, if they are actually to be applied in any realistic way, have to be applied through very, very detailed legislation. Um, if the courts are there as the arbiters of these very, very vague rights, once it comes to a question of giving them content, are you not likely to find the courts just steering absolutely clear be precisely because that is the job of parliament and the legislature rather than the job of the courts to give those rights content beyond the beyond the very very uh superficial you know there is a right to health care what that actually means in practice how much health care making choices about whether or not somebody can have a particular treatment or, or not those are all the sorts of um, um, decisions that the courts have, even with a national service and detailed legislation, steered clear of. Yes, I completely agree with that. I and mean, if we if we had a constitutional provision uh, which simply incorporated lock, stock and barrel, um, a whole swathe of social and economic rights and made those directly legally enforceable and justiciable by courts, um, that would be um, an absolutely correct objection. So if there were, for example, um, a right to the highest attainable standard of health, um, and it was for the courts to adjudicate on that question in a particular case, that would run into all those difficult problems. Um, but that's one model for giving effect to social and economic rights, and that's the way in which people have traditionally assumed it has to be done. Um, the other traditional way in which it's been done is by directive principles of state policy, which we see in some um, constitutions like the Irish Constitution, a number of other constitutions, that makes them totally unenforceable and means the courts have no role whatsoever. But in fact, in some more modern constitutions like South Africa, there's a third model which is now being used and has now been um, in, in place for quite some years, where there's a duty of progressive realisation within available resources which is placed on the state. So there's a role for courts to play. Uh, that duty is mainly an, an accountability to Parliament in relation to what the government is doing to move in the right direction and progressively realise these rights. And occasionally it may involve some case which comes before the courts uh, in relation to the government's performance of the duty, but it doesn't give individual directly legally justiciable rights. And I think that third model is what we need to explore. Well, we're going to come back, no doubt, in at least one future pod episode to look at the constitution in our country and what changes need to be affected as a result of this crisis, both structurally and substantively. I will draw this discussion to a close, if I may, um, having to thank you all uh, for your contributions. Uh, an apology to end the podcast on is that I forgot to ask both Afwa and Martha for their book recommendations, which is normally a mandatory requirement of appearing uh, on the podcast. But uh, we will either put that up on the Matrix website so you can see what the recommendations were, or we'll tell you what they are in next week's podcast. Next week's podcast is going to be looking again at the topical discussion of data in light of the increasing reporting that in order to ease the lockdown, there's going to need to be data tracking of all of us as we move outside our houses and interact with others. So we're going to explore what the human rights implications of that are, not least who should we trust less, government or the big tech companies. So that's for next week. Uh, we need a big thank you to our producer, Rachel Murray, of our very own Matrix Chambers. And we'll see you all and listen to you all and hear from you all next week. Thank you. Thank you.